Well, good morning, Highland Park Church of Christ. As, as Pastor Dave had mentioned, my name is Mel Sigelko. I am Director of Rising Above Ministry here in Grand Prairie, and it's absolutely a privilege and an honor to be able to be here this morning and share a little bit about Rising Above and then encourage you with the word and see you let Pastor Dave out of that cage. I'm not sure if that's a good idea or not. But <laughs> thought it looked good in there. But thanks to Pastor Allen and Mark Larson for the invitation to be here so we can represent Rising Above this morning. And, um, with us, we have some of our staff people. Um, Bernine Starkey is our volunteer coordinator, and we'd like you to get a chance to meet her afterwards because we're actively looking for volunteers, especially in the area of mentorship, just somebody who's willing to kind of journey alongside of our participants in their, in their journey in recovery and finding their way. Uh, one of the things that makes recovery work is supportive relationships and to find healthier relationships than they had in their past. That's basically what we're looking for for mentors. And so there's a, we have a display set up out there and Berdine will be out there. She'll be glad to sit down and talk with you. But Danielle Cuthbert is here this morning too. She's our women's case manager. And Jason Wood, who's not a stranger to most of you, sitting back there keeping Pastor Allen in line. And then uh, Jason is our inner healing facilitator and does some case management as well. And so I'm grateful for our staff team. Years ago, several years ago, um, there was a ministry in Grand Prairie called Aurora Home, and Grand Prairie Church of Christ was very involved in that ministry. And in 2019, early 2019, or even late 2018, um, Aurora Home Board and Rising Above Board, we were having some dialogue, and, and it came to be that then that Aurora decided they needed, they would just kind of fold their ministry and come under Rising Above. And so we have adopted the Aurora Home philosophy and the ministry, and we continued on with our ministry of, of working with, with women. And so that's, if you're wondering whatever happened to Aurora Home, it's kind of part of Rising Above Ministry now. We're grateful for this church for their support of that. And Fran Beagle was um, on the board of Aurora Home, and with that transition, she was on our board for a few years, and she had an amazing input, and in, uh, we valued her contribution to the ministry of Rising Above during that time as well. One of our women's residents, we have four ladies' residences, four residential houses that we use for our women, and one of them is, is named Aurora Home in recognition of the history and, and the legacy of that particular ministry. Rising above, we're committed to helping people break cycles of defeat, and we're known more specifically as addiction treatment facility um, in, here in Grand Prairie, but it goes, cycles of defeat go beyond that. It could be dealing with anger, it could be dealing with anxiety, it could be dealing with past abuse, trauma, low self-esteem, a variety of issues. And so we also serve the community with our inner healing and some of our community supports. But we're more known, as I said, as a residential addiction treatment facility. In our men's program up at Park Campus, we have 19 beds for men, and they are always full. Um, I think it was last month that Lynn had 42 applications from men that wanted into our program, and we only had a turnaround of two. And so you kind of get a picture of the, the need that is out there. And so we have 19 beds for men. We have 17 beds for women in our four residential houses for women. And then we have a second stage. So once they complete our six-month residential program, if they, if they feel like they need some additional or longer term just supports um, accountability, 
then they can go into our second stage housing, which is sober housing. We have a small apartment building with 15 more beds for that. So if you do the math and all that, you'll see that we have 51 beds under, under the direction of rising above ministry and the addiction treatment side of it. I'll give you a real quick overview, and you'll see this on the outline, the, the HELPS acronym. The H and the HELPS acronym, and so what we say is we're committed to helping people break cycles of defeat by providing HELPS, H-E-L-P-S. The H is the housing, and I just kind of walked you through that. It's the safe, sober housing. The E is employment readiness training, so helping people get back into the employment, just helping them with the basic job skills of showing up on time, following directions, keeping track of schedules, those types of things. And so uh, one of our key partners in that is the Mission Thrift store I'm not too far from here, just downtown. And so our people will be serving and working at Mission Thrift. They don't get paid. It's part of the program. It's part of their training to do that work. The L is our life skill training. We have nine hours a week of life skill classes at our park campus facility in the classroom there. And uh, Danielle and Jason are both key part of our life skill and instruction team. And we cover a variety of topics in those classes, and it's really, really wonderful. Uh, the P is personal development. And that's where we dig in and do the harder or deeper work of dealing with the core issues. I'll say this in the message this morning, that behind every addiction, there is emotional pain. And so the personal development helps them get to the place where they can resolve that deeper wounds of the emotional pain. And the S is spiritual formation. We're unapologetic about being a Christian-based ministry, and we see that Jesus is the answer to that deep-rooted emotional pain, and that sets you free, then you can embrace recovery and leave addictive behaviors behind. We've had some new partnerships in this past little while that have been exciting for us as we look at how can we continue to impact the, the growing need for addiction treatment, and how can we help resolve that, and adding more beds is one answer, but we're thinking there's maybe a, a broader scope to it, and that is to help train and, and other people and empower other people to be able to walk alongside of people in addictions. And so we are now working alongside of Peace River Bible Institute and helping them do a, a program to help their to help the students who are going to be our future pastors, future leaders in our churches with understanding of addiction treatment. And then we're looking at uh, partnering, we are partnering with Peerless Trout First Nation and um, four and a half hours or almost five hours northeast of here. Um, small First Nation with a high need, high addiction rate, high suicide rate. And they reached out to us and said, can we help them? And so they actually have one of the ladies' houses that we have now is actually under their domain for them to use for their people. And so we're excited about that partnership. And there's other communities that are reaching out to us for support. And so that's kind of where we're going in the future is how can we serve the North in helping with addiction treatment? Well, enough of me talking about rising above. Rhonda, why don't you come up? And I'm going to invite Rhonda Houle to come up. Um, about 10 days from now, she will be graduating from the program. And so we're excited about that, meaning that she's been with us for six months. And she told me on the way here, she says, do you remember me from about three years ago? And no, she says, I was in the program for about a month then, but didn't work then. But we're so proud of her standing here today. So Rhonda, why don't you come and tell us a little bit about your story? Amen. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just want to thank the Lord for opening an opportunity for me to share where he has brought me out from. 
hello, my brothers and sisters in Christ. My name is Rhonda Houle, and I am from a small reserve called Perilous Trout First Nation. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I've surrendered my life to Jesus on August 25th, 2020. I was bound in drugs and alcohol and a lot of other things before I gave my life to the Lord. I knew in my heart that he, he was calling me for a while. I just didn't know where to start or how. And eventually the drugs and alcohol didn't numb the pain that I was going through. Even though I was intoxicated, I couldn't escape my emotions anymore. So I had to make a decision which road I'm going to take. Am I going to live my life for Jesus or am I going to die without him in my heart? A few weeks later, I've decided I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. I went to church back home where they were having church services. That day I went and surrendered my life to Jesus and I never looked back. The reason why I came to Rising Above is because I didn't deal with the things that drove me to drugs and alcohol in the first place. And the more I didn't deal with those things, the more angry and full of hatred that I became. I needed, I knew I needed to deal with the things in my, in my heart before I fall away from the Lord or before I go back to the world. So I applied for Rising Above, and let me tell you, it's the best decision I've made. I can honestly tell you that I feel a lot lighter than when I first got here. I am healed and restored. Rising Above has given me tools on how to handle things in my life circumstances. It is not only for active addicts, but it is also for recovering addicts looking for a safe place. Inner healing has helped me tremendously, and my inner healer and I got to the root of my problems that caused me to run to my addictions in the first place. With that being said, I give all glory and honor to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, for saving me and restoring everything that the, the devil stole from my life. What the devil meant for evil, God will make it good. I'll end my speech with a scripture, Psalms 118, verse 17, I will not die, instead I will live to tell what the Lord has done. God bless you. Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you for sharing your heart. And um, yeah, she's been such a joy to have around the hallways of Rising Above and, and just to, to be part of our program. She's gonna be missed when she leaves, but we're excited for the opportunities God has for her. Um, we're so grateful for community support. People like you, churches like yours, that regularly support the ministry of Rising Above. About 60% of our regular income, or 60% of our income comes from donations. Um, of people like you. So again, we are so grateful and thankful for that. On June 22nd, we're doing a community presentation called Understanding Anger. And we do these community presentations uh, regularly. And if you'd be interested in that, just make a mental note of that or, or make a note of that. And another thing, and I don't have a date on this, but if there's any ball players here rising above, our, our participants on their own initiative said, we're gonna form a ball team. And then they, they kind of came up with this idea, and then, uh, so they're part of a league in town, but they said, but we also want to do a day when we can just challenge the churches to come out and see if they could beat these addicts, and so on. Um, you might be getting some information about an invitation to come and put a team together from Grand Prairie Church of Christ and see if, they, if you can stand up against some of our participants and playing ball. And, uh, Let me uh, transition into the opportunity to share this morning. Let me just, let's just pray. 
God, as we have just a few moments to be together, would you open our hearts and open our minds to hear what you were asking from us today in response to the challenge to live out our faith in the real world with integrity and with courage and boldness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I just want to apologize that this is in the, for me in the middle of allergy season, and I can hear it in my I can hear it in my voice. You could probably hear it in my voice too, and hopefully you can still hear what I'm saying. Um, but I want to start off with kind of a, a bold statement and maybe a little bit of a upsetting statement. But I believe that the church, at least in our Western culture and our Western civilization, we have found ourselves in an identity crisis. In the response to social issues, we are extremely divided. And even as we have survived the last couple years of COVID, it is taking its toll on unity in the church. And I'm not particularly aware of anything here at Grand Prairie Church of Christ, but I know in our community and other pastors that I've talked to uh, across the country, it has become a very divisive issue within the Christian community. And so we're, we're in this place of losing our identity and who we are and what we're about and what's the main thing. And over the years, over the last several decades, media, television, if you see Christians on TV, they're usually either freaks or fanatics or frauds, and they portray us all in one of those categories. Most people see the church as being irrelevant and out of touch with the real world. And in my role, rising above, even though we're definitely connected to and part of the church, and we are, we are unaccepted, unapologetic about that, we have people come through our doors who are actively searching for God, but they won't step into a church to pursue that because of distrust, and um, maybe they've been hurt by the church or hurt by other Christians in the past, but they won't look to God for spiritual, or they won't look to the church for spiritual direction, and they are out there wandering around. So the idea is that people are spiritually hungry, but somehow the church, we've lost the authority to speak into their lives. If that's how the church and Christians are portrayed, then we clearly have an identity crisis, and we've lost something in what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and this isn't my text, but it's just Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand up against it. And it seems like somewhere we lost the power of what it means to be the church in a broken and hurting world. In a moment, I wanted to turn to James 1.27, and if you have the, um, the inserts that are placed on the, on the chairs or the, the folders, or you'll see the outline for this message in there. But in a moment, I want to look at James 1.27, but a man came into our program several years ago his first comment to me, knowing that we were a Christian-based or a faith-based organization, he was kind of looked at me and he said, you know, Jesus was a good Buddhist. And he kind of just left that comment hanging, watching for my response, testing. What he was really saying was, if I don't believe your form of Christianity, if I don't trust your Bible or your God, will you still help me? And we embraced him on his journey as he came in with his questions and his distrust of the Christian version 
of the gospel and the Christian perspective of who God was. In spite of his distrust, we have the ability to walk alongside of him and watch that hardened, cold heart soften to come to terms with who Jesus is. James 1.27 is just a, a simple little verse, but it's extremely powerful for those of us that have a history in the church, that have been raised in the church. It says this, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Pure and genuine religion, or some translations are simply pure and faultless religion is this. To look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being corrupt by the world. There are two distinct parts to this mandate. And so did you catch the and in there as I emphasize the and? It's not an or. And yet, many of us who are raised in a conservative Christian culture, conservative Christian environment, we read that with an or. And I was raised, I grew up with a strong caution on the second part of that verse. Emphasis on keep yourself from being corrupted or polluted or, or from the world or from the world's values. Don't get too close to the world or it's going to rub off on you and you're going to be like them. We were not encouraged to reach out and take care of the struggling and the hurting in our community. We were so cautioned about the second part of that. So we would take seriously the scriptures like in, in in Corinthians chapter 6, where it says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. But it had no real balance to it about those that were living right next door to us, that were far from God, that were hurting and broken and destitute and lost, because we were afraid that we might become corrupt. Now, people could come to the church for spiritual help, but as far as us reaching out to our neighborhoods, or we would give money to missions overseas, and support that, but for those in our own neighborhoods, in our own backyards, we might become corrupt if we got too close to them. This is what I call in the outline, if you're following along, is, is the misplaced call, and it's this misplaced call that leads us into an identity crisis. So again, if this is, may not make sense to you for those of you that are newer to the faith, but for those of us that have been in the faith for a while, you might have, this, you might have heard this phrase called Christian bubble, where you surround yourself with just believers and fellow Christians and people who think like you, believe like you, have a worldview like you do, probably political perspectives that are similar to yours. Well, I was raised in one of those Christian bubbles. I was in it full-blown. My extended family, all my cousins on both sides of the family, all my relatives were in this Christian bubble, and I grew up with that thinking that was normal. I was segregated from the world so that I wouldn't get corrupted. And when I was in Bible college, and I went to Bible college because that's just what we did, not because I sensed a calling at that time, but just because that was in this Christian bubble, that was just the next step. I was 19 years old in Bible college, but working part-time at Canadian Tire in Moose Jaw. Went to the Canadian Tire Christmas party, and at the tables there, they had the wine bottles, and for me, as a 19-year-old kid, that was a culture shock. In my conservative Christian upbringing, alcohol was very taboo and off-limits. And that was one of the first experiences, exposures I had to being physically in the same room as open alcohol. And, and there's this kind of weird thoughts going through my head. If I even sit down at the table, 
Am I crossing a line? Am I going to end up drunk by sitting at the same table as this, you know, not even touching this stuff? And you, you kind of wonder, you get those thoughts through your head. Culture shock, foreign territory with the world that's out there, out of touch, disconnected, leaving us in a place of what I call this misplaced call or identity crisis. My story may be extreme to you as you're hearing it, but it's not unique. We have a history of the church and Western civilization of isolating ourselves from the real world as cutting them off. And as we have done that, we have lost our sense of purpose and our calling. When we stay in this self-protection mode of keeping our hearts clean without with trying not to be corrupted, we literally neglect hundreds of verses that speak of God's heart for the poor, of God's heart for the marginalized, and our mandate to walk alongside of them. Throughout scripture, that challenge that is woven in there. And so the message here about keeping our hands dirty, and be willing to come out and touch people's lives in very intimate ways and very close ways and walk through them, walk with them through their hardships. Proverbs 19:17 says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he will repay you. Or Proverbs 17:5, whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. That's an easy trap to fall into. At rising above, we've seen hundreds of people break out of what we call these cycles of defeat, the anger, the anxiety, that deep emotional pain, the stuff that Rhonda was referring to that caused her to go into this path of addiction, self-esteem issues, abuse. And it takes a lot of courage to face those hard things. And so when we say to people who are stuck in these cycles of defeat, who are on the street, who wander around, and, and if we just say to them, just smarten up, why don't you just get a job? Why don't you just get over it? We're mocking them and showing contempt for our maker. When we refer to them as just being lazy or incompetent, we're showing contempt for their maker and our maker. We need to find a place that we can lose the judgment of people who are struggling and take time to get our hands dirty and walk alongside of them in their suffering. And I can challenge you this, if you do that and you hear their story, you will lose that sense of judgment and your heart of compassion will open up towards them. Because behind every cycle of defeat, behind every person in addiction, there is a story, a story of pain, a story of loss, a story of hurt or abandonment or abuse. There's a story that'll shake you. And when you hear that story, we lose the judgment and we're gonna go, I wanna get my hands dirty. I wanna come alongside of you. But rather than get our hands dirty, we're afraid of being corrupted by the world that we close that off and we isolate and we withdraw and we lose the credibility. And by losing credibility in the community, we miss the heart of God for the marginalized. We miss the opportunities to serve and to see lives changed. We miss our calling. I was just reminded of this week of a fellow that came into our program, it was actually 10 years ago. He was 47-year-old, chronic alcoholic, drug addict, came into Rising Above. It was in June of 2012 that he came into the program. In and out of treatment many times, substance abuse always got the best of him. 
It's what helped him cope with the emotional pain of being rejected and abandoned by his father. But in rising above, he was willing to deal with those deep emotional wounds, found some healing for those wounds. He realized that even though his biological father may have abandoned him and rejected him and abused him, his heavenly father had open arms of love and compassion and care. He committed his life to Christ. He shares his story publicly. He was baptized. When he first came in, he, he came in a, a kind of a sickly form. And, and as time went on, we, he just wasn't getting better. And in November of 2012, he, he fell and he broke his hip. And even that didn't seem to heal. And so it was December 19th that upon investigation as to why his hip wasn't healing, he was diagnosed with cancer that it was basically eating its way through most of his body, undetected by him. Or, and he was only given three months to live. That was on December 19th and December 22nd, which was a Saturday, I went up to see him in the hospital and he was just kind of falling asleep and not really able to stay awake. So I just said, hey, James, don't worry about it. Just, you just get your rest. I'll come back tomorrow after church. And it was during that Sunday morning service, just, just literally a few days after he got his diagnosis, said he had three months to live, that I got a call that Sunday morning saying James had passed away. And I never had a chance to follow up on that conversation with him. His sister said to us that we're kind of caring for him as we're preparing for the funeral for him. They were so happy to have their brother back, even if it was just for those last six months. And for those six months, they were extremely grateful to see the brother have life back in him, even in the midst of dying with cancer. And the best part is that James is in heaven, whole, healed, restored, and free, because somebody was willing to get their hands dirty and come alongside of this man in his distress, in his brokenness, and say, we want to walk with you through this. This tension, this struggle that we have about keeping our hearts clean and still being willing to get our hands dirty is not new in our civilization, in our culture now. It goes all the way back to Acts chapter 6. You look at this, and let me just read this passage from Acts chapter 6. Is, uh, the kind of the, the neglect of the widows when it came to the daily distribution of food. And it says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And I love that part. They were kind of weighing this out here. Going, do we, do we stop the ministry of the word and prayer and go focus on this area? And they said, no, we, no, we can't do that. Our calling is we're going to focus on the ministry of the word and with prayer. And so it goes on to say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They wanted people with strong character and strong faith. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And, and watch verse 7, what happens here when we get this right, when we don't forsake the ministry to the marginalized, and we don't compromise the, the ministry of the word and prayer, Verse 7 says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
caring for the poor was established as a very integral and key part for the ministry of the early church way back in the book of Acts. Seven men commissioned to wait on tables. And I want to say to us today that we're all commissioned to wait on tables in some aspect, in some scenario. Somewhere the church has lost the importance of the calling to wait on tables, the calling to look after the widows and orphans in their distress. We lost what it means to reach out to the marginalized. We've dropped the ball, and instead of serving the marginalized, we have failed to give those who have no voice a voice and to place value into those who have, that's, have lost that sense of value. Someplace in the separation of church and state, the church gave away our God-given calling and responsibility to be, in a sense, the social service arm of our community. And when that responsibility of social welfare shifted away from the church into the hands of the government, it was a bad day for the church because we lost part of our identity of who we are, of who our calling is. It was a bad day for the social welfare system, and it was a really bad day for those who need what we have to offer. For the church, it put us into this credibility crisis where we lost the right to speak, this identity crisis. Who are we? I spent 20 years in pastoral ministry prior to rising above, and the focus of the pastoral ministry back then was how many people are sitting in the chairs on a Sunday morning, and we would count and check the boxes, and somehow that was supposed to be the fulfillment of the ministry of the church, is how many people could we put in? And we're missing something if that's the end all of why the church exists. It goes beyond that. There's something bigger and better out there that God has for us. But we gave that away. For the government, when this happened, um, and we see it, you see the ever-increasing budgets going to try to care for the marginalized, spending big bucks with little results. It's a huge issue today for our elected leaders. And for those in need to get some physical response, some physical help, but no spiritual help to go alongside of that, leaving them still in a place of cycles of defeat would be our term. And the need is increasing way more than what the government can finance and help fund to do. And so they remain, those in need remain lost, emotionally wounded, without hope. The hope that they need is here in these chairs this morning. The calling and the mandate to do something to get our hands dirty is for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So how do we get our calling back? <clears throat> Usually somebody in my position who is working in a Christian-based addiction treatment center has a story of addiction. And you've heard my story of age 19 being exposed to alcohol for one of the first times in my life and, and the culture shock that was for me. And so how did I get here? And I'm still asking myself that question sometimes. How do I get to where I can walk alongside of people in addictions? Well, one for me was a pivotal moment. This goes all the way back to Canadian Tire and Moosh again, when I was still in Bible school. And I was asked to move from the hardware department that I liked, because I kind of was liking tools and all that kind of stuff, to sports, which part again, because of my conservative Christian environment, we were never encouraged to do sports. And so sports was not my thing at all. But they moved me over to the sporting goods department and they said, because the sporting goods manager is a little bit hard to get along with and hard to work with, and they thought I could probably work with them some, or work under him fine, and I did. We actually got along really well. And as in the course of 
working with him, I had heard from other people that he was an alcoholic. And I'm going, okay, that's weird that I, I'm actually rubbing shoulders with an alcoholic. But in the work setting, that was okay, that was fine. One night, I was living at home. One night in the, in the middle of the night, my dad come, woke me up, three in the morning, there's a phone call, and he says, it's from James, your supervisor at Canadian Tire. And I go, why would he be phoning at three in the morning? But anyway, I got on the phone, and he, and he says, Mal, he says, I need you to take responsibility for my belongings to make sure everything of mine is sold and given to my daughter who lives in Winnipeg, because I'm going to take my life. And then there's a, about a 19-year-old kid going, um, this was the middle of winter, and I said, James, um, before you do that, I need to come pick you up. I need to come over here. We can talk. And he agreed. So I, he didn't drive, so I drove over to his place. First of all, I went back and woke my dad up. I said, Dad, you got to get up. Dad was the president of the Bible school. And I said, Dad, you got to get up. I'm going to go pick James up. This is what he said on the phone. And I, you, you need to talk to him. He thought, I, hadn't, I had nothing. So I went over, picked him up, and brought him back. And I sat down with him and my dad at 3-something in the morning. And... Um, Listen to James' story and listen to my dad's response with the gospel. And I watched James that day. Instead of following through on his threat to take his life, he knelt down and he prayed and accepted Christ in his life. And I saw something change inside this man that was hard to get along with at Canadian Tire, known as an alcoholic. And I saw something shift and change in him. And I left that experience that day and saying, whatever happened that, in that office at 3.30 in the morning in my house, I want to see it happen again and again and again. And there was something inside of me without knowing what was going on that I knew I needed to get out of that bubble so I can get my hands dirty and at the same time keep the heart clean and not be corrupted. But I knew we had to get more involved with people who were hurting and broken because we had something that they needed called hope. Hope in the transformation power of Jesus Christ. So that experience began to foster something in me that said, I've got to find ways to get out of this bubble and help broken, hurting people. We need to find connecting points if our churches and our Western civilization are going to have credibility again. We need to find connecting points with hurting people, and they are not far from you. God has placed you where you are, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your family dynamics. God has placed you within arm's length of somebody who is hurting and lost. They might have lots of money. That's irrelevant. But they're hurting and they're broken and they need somebody to reach out to them. Finding connecting points. So my question for you, my challenge for you is this. Where are your connecting points? Through rising above, we're able to touch a small segment, just a small piece of the pie of what James is talking about when he says to look after widows and orphans in their distress. As we try to take that phrase and say, what does it mean in our culture, the widows and the orphans? Yeah, it means those that are on the street and the, and the attics. And, and it means those that are in the nursing homes that don't have visitors. It means those that are struggling with mental health issues that feel the depression kicking in and they don't know how to cope with life. It means people who are new to Canada and new to the community. It, there's a whole lot of segments of our culture and society that would fit. It means those that are stuck in a, in a marriage that they don't know how they're going to survive. And those people are living close to each of one of us. As a ministry, as, as Church of Christ, you've done amazing things in the past. I know the Saturday night suppers that you've hosted here for years and the children's ministries that you've done. And, and, but I'm not so much talking about the corporate congregation. I'm talking about 
as individuals. And there may be a handful of you that need to talk to Berdeen and say, yeah, I want to be a mentor to some of these people at Rising Above. But that's not for everybody. But what is for everybody is to find a connecting point with people who are broken and hurting and lost. Calvin Miller wrote a book called A Taste of Joy. And in the book, he tells about a wealthy woman who was found dead in her home. She lived alone. The coroner could find no organic reason for her death. Miller commented, and he said, I think the cause of death was simply neglect. She was weary of setting a single plate at the table and fixing her coffee just one cup at a time. For the old woman had written on her calendar that day that she died only one phrase that said, no one came today. God cares about the solitary person in our community that feels alienated and isolated. And he wants us to care too. And he wants us to be willing to get our hands dirty, to kind of break out of that bubble of fellowship and faith within the church family and say, we want to touch people's lives around us. And God calls us and compels us to do that. So may it be never, or may it never be that because of our self-absorbed busyness and selfishness that someone within our sphere of influence, someone within our reach would have to say that no one came today or no one called today. We might say, but it costs a lot to care. It does. And nothing costs as much as caring except not caring and letting these people stay in their cycles of defeat and brokenness and loneliness. Rising Above started almost 15 years ago with a mandate to help people break cycles of defeat with one key word as, our, as the key to doing that, and that word is hope. Hope is what it takes to break cycles of defeat. You don't need a lot of skill. You don't need a lot of intelligence. You need to just be able to walk alongside of somebody and say, I know something that I have some hope that you need to have too. That's what separates the faith-based programs like Rising Above from other ones. Other programs can help you understand why you are in turmoil and offer you some tools to help you in that turmoil. Hope says we can help you break free from that turmoil and experience peace. So where are your connecting points where you can be the messenger of hope to hurting people, some with developmental disabilities, the lonely, seniors, people at your workplace who are struggling in their marriages, to bring a message of hope. We have a message of hope, and it is a life-giving message. And we have the privilege of walking, at rising above with people who have struggled and are dealing with those kind of things. One of the things that we've learned at Rising Above, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap up here pretty quick. Um, behind every addiction, as I said, there's a story of hurt and pain. And if you keep peeling back those layers, you're going to hear this phrase, you're going to hear them say something to the effect that God's not for me. God is not on my side. And if you kind of picture yourself owning that sense of I'm in this world alone and even God isn't on my side, if you want a definition of hopelessness, that is it right there. God is not for me. God is not here with me. That is a definition of hopelessness. And our job is pretty simple. It comes alongside of them and says, no. There's a message of hope. God is for you. He is not against you. 
and I can show you how. I can walk you through that. Every day I thank God for the privilege that we have at Rising Above to walk with men and women through the darkness of that belief that God is not for them to say, yeah, he is. And here's the hope to hang on to because of that. And I challenge you again to say, where are your connecting points? We need to understand that this hope that we're talking about comes first to us through Christ who gave himself for us and we need to embrace that wholeheartedly and I'm not focusing on the clean hearts aspect of this message as much because I'm talking to the choir here. I'm talking to people who have experienced the hope of Christ, that transformational power of the work of Jesus on the cross and we're going to be celebrating that again as we take the elements of communion and acknowledging that we have forgiveness and we have peace because of what he did for us. But then we have that challenge, not to hoard that in our little bubble, but to freely share it and be willing to get our hands dirty. In there, if you have that folder, would you just open it up if you haven't opened it up? Inside there is Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to invite you to join me, and we're going to try doing this reading in unison, where we're going to separate these two sections. I'm going to I'm going to start with you guys. You guys can be the, the dirty hands people. So you're going to read the, those two sections there on, that you'll see in the headings with dirty hands. These two sections over here, you guys are the, the clean hearts people. So you're going to respond. And this is just Isaiah chapter 58. And if you listen to it from these perspectives of the dirty hands, what we're doing for those marginalized, and then what God is doing in us to clean our hearts, so if we can do this out loud together, and this is always awkward, of how, how do we start these unison things, but the dirty hands people, verse, Isaiah 58 verse 6 says, is not... And the response? Powerful scripture, and so it takes away it. It takes away the power, the fear that if again, if you can identify with my story of growing up in this Christian bubble, this blows that away because it says, if we get our hands dirty, if we come alongside the brokenhearted, then God's favor is going to be upon you. You're going to experience His blessing and experience His presence, and you're going to have that clean heart when we're willing 
to get our hands dirty and serve the poor. Find a way to connect with that oppressed person or that poor wanderer whose worldview is dark and empty, maybe way different than yours. That's the waiting on tables. That's the looking after the widows and the orphans. And they're right here within the reach of your arms when you look around to people you have influence on and interconnect with every day. Here's the catch. When you begin to do this and get our hands dirty, their life may be touched. You're not in control of that. You don't know the outcome of their response. If it's going to be you that's going to help them come to faith or if you're just going to be the seed that's going to plant that somebody else is going to water and the harvest is going to come later. Their life may be touched, but yours will be changed when we become obedient to God's word of being willing to get our hands dirty and say, here I am, God. Whose life could I speak hope into today? And watch what God does. And it's going to begin within our own hearts and it'll transform our community. May God bless you.